This is Matt Raymond at the Library of Congress. Each year, thousands of book lovers of all ages visit the nation's capital to celebrate the joys of reading and lifelong literacy at the National Book Festival, sponsored by the Library of Congress and hosted by First Lady Laura Bush. Now in its eighth year, this free event, held on the National Mall in Washington, Saturday, September 27th, will spark readers' passion for learning as they interact with the nation's best-selling authors, illustrators, and poets. Even if you can't attend in person, you can still participate online. These podcasts with well-known authors and other materials are available through the National Book Festival website at www.loc.gov bookfest. It's now my honor to talk with the best-selling author, Louis Byard. As a uh, critically acclaimed novelist, reviewer, and journalist, Mr. Byard has written for publications including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Salon.com, and Nerve.com. Among his five novels are the Edgar Award-nominated The Pale Blue Eye and Mr. Timothy, named as a New York Times notable book and one of People Magazine's 10 best books of 2003. Mr. Byard's latest work, The Black Tower, is due out August 26th. And welcome to you, sir. It's a pleasure to talk with you today. Pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about what uh, our, your fans can expect to hear from you at the National Book Festival on September 27th. They can expect to hear me blathering about, <laughs> um, probably I'll be, be talking about uh, The Black Tower, which is my newest book mostly. It concerns a real-life French detective named Eugène-Francois Vidocq. Vidocq is really the first detective, the first modern archetype of the detective. He was a a escaped convict who became a police spy and worked his way up the chain of command and eventually founded the Sûreté, which is the Parisian playing clothes force. And he was a, a very famous figure in his day. He wrote best-selling memoirs and hung around with famous writers like Dumas and Balzac and was the inspiration for both the Jean Valjean and Javert in Les Miserables. Mm-hmm. And is still, I think, the... the um, the archetype today. He's, he was the first to use ballistics. He was the first to uh, use plainclothes officers to infiltrate, to go undercover. He was a master of disguise and surveillance. So without the example that Vidoc sets, you don't have du- uh, Dupin, which is Poe's first character. You, you don't have the Sherlock Holmes isn't quite the same person. Uh, he really was the um, setting the template in the early 19th century. So I just thought since very few Americans know about him, it would be fun to build a an historical novel um, around him and see what happens. What is it about the genre of historical thrillers that uh, appeals to you? Well, I like the thriller, the mystery thriller, because it's a great way of getting characters in motion, sometimes literally in motion, because they're sometimes running for their lives. Um, and I like the challenge of writing historical novels, because... Um, it's it's a great way to bring people into history without making them feel like they're having a history lesson. You can you can bring them into a new world without you know boring them with facts or just some, I mean just mere facts or 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 um, you know making them take pop quizzes, making it an enjoyable experience. And of course, it gives me an excuse to do research at the Library of Congress, where I actually have a study shelf. I live five blocks from the library, so I'm happy to do a shout-out to them because they're really a, a major player in my research efforts. Well, we appreciate the plug. Thank you. Um, in Pale Blue Eye, you weave Edgar Allan Poe into your story, uh, literally making him one of the characters. 
how do you stay true to fact while also incorporating fiction? That's a really good question. Uh, I uh, Basically, I try to learn as much as I can about Poe uh, as he was in that period. He was still quite a young man. Uh, he was at West Point, as, as you said. And uh, I, I, I read his letters. Um, I read, you know, contemporary accounts of him. And then, but then I, I feel free to imagine my own Poe, you know, informed by the history, but also um, coming out of my own imaginative projection of him. It's a kind of interesting crevice between fact and fiction. But, but Poe himself is such an interesting character that he really almost begs to be at the centerpiece of fiction himself. Now, when you wrote Mr. Timothy, you talked about collaborating with Charles Dickens. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean in, in the most basic sense is I'm, I took a character from Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, Tiny Tim, and reimagined him as a young man in the London underworld and built a story around a, a, a creation of, uh, of Charles Dickens, and re, sort of recreating him in the same process. But, but also I, I saw it as a kind of bridge between... Um, the original Tiny Tim and Modern Day, and and so Dickens was very much my collaborator and very very much the author who's had the greatest influence on me. I saw the book as an homage to him, even though it took the character in a rather different direction than Christmas Carol did. How do you strike that balance? How do you bring that fresh perspective while also staying true to a character that's so well known for for decades? I think you have to duck in the other direction, and that's that was exa- that was my first impulse with Tiny Tim. Um, I actually wrote about Tiny Tim because I never particularly cared for that character. Among, among all the Dickens um, cosmology, Tiny Tim was the one that, that, that didn't convince me. And I began to wonder, well, what is it that Dickens didn't tell us about him? So I thought, well, what, let's, let's scrape away all the sentiment, all, all the incrustations of familiarity that have built around him and take away things like his limp, his, his, I'm sorry, his crutch, because that, uh, that's too easy a source of sentiment, and make him a grown-up, so we take away that dewy innocence, mm. and then see what's left. And, and, uh, and that, that was really, the, the mystery thriller element really grew out of that original impulse. Where do you get your story ideas? Is there, are there inspirational threads that uh, run throughout your work? I get my ideas really from reading. Um, I think of, of, of my books really as books that read other books. So um, there are ways of, uh, the last two books in particular, The Pale Blue Eye and Mr. Timothy, were ways of, of repaying a debt in a sense. I've already mentioned my debt to Dickens, but of course anybody who writes in the mystery format has a, a huge debt to Edgar Allan Poe. He was the first to write uh, detective fiction in really any language. Mm. And he's still the one who's who's uh, shaping our efforts today. We're just walking in his footsteps. So um, they really come out of my experiences, my pleasures uh, as a reader. Are you a fan of Arthur Conan Doyle? I sure am. I sure am. Um, And uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, um, in fact, one of my seminal reading experiences as a child was The Hound of the Baskervilles. There was that marvelous line, Mr. Holmes, the footprints of a gigantic hound. You know, I still remember the thrill that that line sent through me. Mm. So I, I, I've been reading detective novels since I was a, a kid and enjoying them very much, and it, it doesn't get much better than, than the Holmes stories. You touched earlier on uh, visiting the Library of Congress. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your approach to your writing, in particular your, uh, your research and your methodology. I 
basically just immerse myself as much as I can in any given period. Um, I, I start with you know, the original sources. I read literature that's written around that time. I find it particularly helpful to read accounts of foreigners because the past is a foreign country to us as well. And foreigners have the same perspective that, that we do. They're, they're going there to find things out. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I learn as much as I can over a few months, but I also give myself room to invent and embroider where necessary. I don't, I'm not a historian, so I don't feel the need to have, um, you know, everything be 100% historically vetted. But I do want to create a feeling of verisimilitude so the reader feels convinced that he or she is walking in this time, is walking on these streets, is, is seeing things as they might have looked. Are there any time periods that you haven't covered yet that you want to or, or maybe might like to cover in future books? Oh, uh, wow. You know, I've, I've been sticking mostly in the 19th century. Um, uh, I, I really haven't declared any time period off limits. In fact, my next book, the book I'm working on now, uh, I haven't started writing it yet, but it's probably going to be set partly in Elizabethan England, and well, but also have a modern-day component. So um, I really like the challenge of moving around in different eras. You know, I, I've never really wanted to write a series because I, I, I like going back to the well each time and, and finding a new place, a new time that um, I can educate myself about. That's one of the real pleasures of, of writing these books is I get to educate myself in the process. Clearly, you have an affinity for classics and, and their authors. Is it by design that, that you are trying to get people to uh, be familiar with classics and, and these authors, or is that just a byproduct of your work? Uh, well, that would be that would be a lovely effect if that were the case. I mean, I'd love for people to read, say, The Pale Blue Eye and go back to read Poe and see how really dark and strange and often terrifying he still is. He's a very powerful writer even today. Or to go back to, to Dickens' work. That would be a lovely effect. But I'm treating these texts as texts that we already know, at least culturally. These are texts that we've really absorbed into our cultural DNA. So... Um, uh, the books I write are kind of commentaries on, on them, but um, but yeah, to the extent that they drive people back to the original sources, that is that would be wonderful. What do you think it is about those books that makes them classics and and so enduring over time? You know, it's really hard to identify. I think what makes um, a book live on. Uh, I, I think it's just that the the people on the page seem to walk and breathe. They have a life that just transcends the page. I think when Dickens is writing A Christmas Carol, for instance, he was working at an amazing level of inspiration. He wrote it very quickly. I think he probably understood how special it was as he was writing it. And in fact, if you read some of his other Christmas novels, they're not nearly as inspired. Uh, every bit is didactic, but nowhere near as, as entrancing as, as A Christmas Carol. It, it, there's just some amazing confluence of a writer finding um, the right material, um, imagining his way into the situation, and, and creating something that we'll still be reading 200 years from now. It doesn't happen to most of us, unfortunately. Most of us, few of us, very few of us will be read after we're, after we're dead. But uh, um, you, st- you always do cherish the ones that, that live on. Hmm. Now, I mentioned that you are also a book reviewer. Um, between 
that life, I guess, and, and being a novelist, are there any challenges uh, between juggling the two? And, and I suppose uh, a natural connection might be that as an author, you're hoping for good reviews of your own books. <laughs> yeah, and you worry, too, that, that you're building up a karmic debt. by Every bad review, review you write for, about somebody else will have to be sort of taken out of your hide at some point down the line. Um, I find them actually complementary tasks. I really do. I, I, um, I love the challenge of looking at somebody else's work and trying to figure out uh, how, what makes it work or what makes it doesn't work. I do know that as somebody who is subjected to reviews, I don't, I make a point of not writing gratuitously spiteful reviews. I really believe there's a, a role to be played with constructive engagement and rather than, you know, the kind of flamethrowing by which some critics, frankly, have made their name. I, I prefer to help rather than hinder, which doesn't mean I'm not honest about my reaction, but I'm not going to, you know, spend a thousand words um, trashing, pointlessly trashing something. I, I'd much rather read a good book in the first place. Life is too short to spend it on bad books. Mm. And as, um, as a reviewer for Salon.com, I, I find I'm, I'm, I'm able to pick a lot of the titles I review, which means I get to avoid, you know, um, the pieces that, that I wouldn't want to read anyway. Hmm. Uh, does writing come easy to you? I mean, do, do you experience writer's block? I can't afford to experience writer's block. I've got, <laughs> I have a, a mortgage to pay. I've got two kids I'm raising. So uh, that's, not, that's not a luxury I can afford. Um, and, I, and I say that only half facetiously. I mean, there, to me, writing is, is, is a craft, but it's also my profession. Um, so I, I, I sit down every day and I just I start writing. Um, I'm not sure that I really believe in writer's block per se. I think if, if, one, if a writer's experiencing that, it may just be that the idea itself doesn't work. Um, but I find just the act of, of putting words on paper uh, almost inevitably generates more words, and, and then it, it goes from there. What do you enjoy about writing? Is it, um, is it all pleasure, or just, you know, it is a, paid, a way to pay the bills, as you say? <laughs> Well, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful way to pay the bills, and I'm very fortunate that I that I get paid to do this to make up stories. I mean, it's, it, there's not many better jobs than that. But yeah, it's certainly hard work. It's 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 not um, you know it's not like some muse descends and 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 camps in your brain and 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 views out sentences for you. It's it's a labor, and it and it, and it takes me two years to write each book. Um, but it's also it's it's labor that really. Um, that uses the, the full extent of my inner resources, you know, emotions and thoughts and feelings and, and um, perceptions and memories. All these things get plumbed in a very powerful way. Uh, and there's nothing like holding the book in your hands after it's all done, you know, seeing it between covers and thinking, wow, I actually wrote this thing. Mm. It's, an, it's still an extraordinary feeling after, you know, five times it's happened now. What advice do you offer to people who are considering following in your own footsteps? Uh, well, think very hard about it, I guess. But uh, to me, the desire to write um, is its own insanity. I mean, it's, 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 not a, it's not a rational decision. It's not something that when, it's not like choosing a, I don't know, a career in law or a career in, uh, in accounting. I don't mean to demean those professions, but I mean, writing is something that generally people are compelled to do. Um, and if you're meant to be a writer, then it probably then you're probably already doing it. I, I find in D.C., for instance, there are people who 
will identify themselves as writers who, who actually haven't written anything. <laughs> they, they just sort of think it's something they're going to do when they get down to it, when they get around to it, and maybe when they retire, maybe down the road. Um, but the people I know who've really made it go but are the ones who, who find the time mm. because, because it's that important to them. They, they'll carve out, they'll get up an hour early, stay up an hour late, something, because that they, this is what they need to be doing. Would you care to give us a glimpse about what uh, might be coming up for you next? Uh, let's see. Well, the Black Tower, as, as you mentioned, is coming out uh, in August. And um, the book I'm working on now, as I mentioned, is, is partly set in Elizabethan England. And it's um, based, it's, it's about the School of Night, which was a group of Elizabethan intellectuals uh, who included Walter Raleigh and Christopher Marlowe who were rumored to be dabbling in various dark arts and atheism and um, were perhaps um, satirized by Shakespeare in, in one of his plays. Uh, there's still no definitive evidence that they, these people met as a school, but they were individually and uh, cumulatively very interesting. And, of course, that, that name, which was attached to them by Shakespeare, uh, the School of Night, is so evocative for me that it's really the first of my books that, that came about from a name, all the others have really come about through by looking at a particular character. But the School of Night just was something that began reverberating in my head, and it's still, it's still reverberating now. We'll see what comes out of it. Hmm. Before we let you go, I have to ask uh, why you think it's important to participate in the National Book Festival in particular. Well, I think it's wonderful to make a, a statement as a nation, if you will, about the importance of books. Um, and I've, I live in Washington, D.C., so I can testify to the fact. I've, I go down there myself, you know, not just when I'm one of the authors, but I go down there myself um, to um, hear what other authors have to say, to see, hear what they've been working on. And it's really inspiring to see the, the thousands of people who are crowding on the mall and bringing their kids in many cases just because they love books. I mean, we, I, we get used to thinking about books as a minority art form, and maybe they are, but this is a very powerful testament that that words on a page still mean something to a lot of people. And whenever you can make that statement, um, it's, it, it, it's, uh, it's all the more powerful for it. Well, Louis Byard, we appreciate your time and your insights today. Thank you. And, of course, we will be able to hear more from you at the National Book Festival. That is Saturday, September 27th on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. From 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., of course, it's always free and open to the public. For more details and a complete list of the participating authors, visit www.loc.gov bookfest. From the Library of Congress in Washington, this is Matt Raymond. Thank you for listening.